I'm Ellen Besner of the CJN Daily, and it's Monday, April 10th, 2023. Many of you might still be off for the holiday break, or maybe you've had no power since Wednesday night in parts of Ontario and Quebec due to the ice storm, so you've had to postpone your seders till the power came back on. We would love to hear about your experiences with the 2023 Passover Plague of Darkness and Cold. Meanwhile, because it's a stat holiday, Easter Monday and Cholamoid Passover, we're bringing you a bonus episode today. It's from our CJN colleagues at the Bonjour Chai podcast. It's their second annual Great Canadian Seder, and I'm in it too. Plus, you'll also hear the other podcasters, Ralph ben Mergi, Alana Zakon, and David Sklar of the upcoming show Culturally Jewish, and the Menschwarmers Gabe Pulver and James Hirsch. The Seder is all conducted by the hosts of Bonjour Chai, Avi Feingold, and Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. You can also subscribe for free to all the other great podcasts in our CJN Podcast Network, and the link on how to do that is in our show notes. We'll be back Tuesday with a regular CJN Daily episode. Meanwhile, enjoy. Daddy? What is it, my child? Daddy, what's going on here? Why is everybody singing? And how come the table is set with matzah instead of bread? Well, you see... Daddy? Uh Uh-huh. Why is this night different from all other nights? Why? Why? This is Bonjour Chai, the second annual Great Canadian Seder edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltbovi in Toronto. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we will hear stories, we will hear wisdom and songs from across the nation, from politicians to proletarians, cantors and comedians, all uniting together to celebrate Passover. Phoebe. How's it going? It's all right. How about you, Avi? Good. Are you uh, getting geared up for Passover? Not particularly, but um, I respect the choice of those who are. <laughs> there you go. So what are you doing to prepare? What am I doing to prepare? Well, we're cleaning the kitchen. We're shopping for new food. We're getting all the menus ready. We have guest lists. Um, we have homework for all the guests. If you come to our Seder ever, you should know that there is homework that you have to prepare. Um, we give you a passage that you have to not just recite, but expound on in whatever way you think is uh, the rightest way to expound on that passage. Um, we feel like everybody should participate. And as the kids get older, they help out and they expound in their own way and they do their own thing. Um, mm-hmm. So it's great. It's always an evolving um, act, uh, our Seder. So I have a question about Seders generally that maybe you can answer. Please. What do you do if you're somebody inclined to being kind of hangry? Uh, so we actually have a solution for this in our family Seder. Um, we, you know, at the beginning, you take a little bit of greenery, the carpas, and you dip it in some salt water. And I think that's also very tasty. Parsley and salt. Absolutely. Year-round, delicious. Um, so some people just try to take a modicum of that, and then that's going to get them through, and then people get hangry, exactly like you said. So we actually take it to the other level, and we say anything that is a vegetable or falls in that vegetable, bore puriha adama, blessing category, and anything that's a dip that would be appropriate for those things um, gets spread out on the table, and you have lots of dips and lots of vegetable options, and there are crudités and potato chips and strawberries even, and different different um sort of things i put an aioli out we put olive tapenade i do a balsamic glaze for the strawberries and we just have people uh, munching throughout the seder so that they don't have to worry about getting hangry and um if you if you have your cup of wine from the kiddush we give you a second cup that you can have the second cup there for the telling of the story but still drink your first kiddush cup so 
we really have gotten to the point where we are trying our best to make sure that people don't get hangry throughout the Seder. Okay, because that is a, a central Seder memory of mine, um, because I, as somebody inclined to the hangriness. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's dive right into it. Um, the first people we're going to be hearing from um, is uh, Sami Al-Maghrebi. Uh, his uh, name was Salma Amzalag. He was a famous cantor in Montreal for many years, a famous Sephardic uh, cantor. Um, and we got a recording of his entire family Seder. And so we're going to start with that and then hear some clips of that throughout the Seder night. Um, uh, his daughter, Yolanda Amzalag, actually provided us with this. And they have a foundation devoted to uh, the culture that he uh produced and all of the the music and and the life that he lived um so great thanks to the fondation salmon abzalag for this recording of the uh seder according to his tradition so we're going to start with that um along with uh, a small story from cantor eric moses of best shalom synagogue in toronto about seders in sudbury de Pessah. Papa revient de la synagogue. Toute la famille est autour de la table le plus somptueusement dressée, portant les aliments de tradition séculaire. Entouré de vaisselles neuves, de chandeliers allumés, voici le plateau rituel, le pain azim, pain sans levain, le bras d'agneau, tous les symboles d'amertume, amertume des épreuves du désert. Papa remplit pour chacun de nous un verre de vin, se lève et chante le qui My childhood in Sudbury, Ontario, had a very special tradition. Each year on the second night of Pesach, the entire Jewish community would gather together at our little synagogue for a communal Seder. That was our extended family in Sudbury. I have often felt that the less you are surrounded by something, the greater value you place upon it. While Sudbury did not have many Jews, it had an incredible warmth of communal spirit. It's really with great thanks to my childhood roots in small town Ontario that instilled these values in me as a young child. And I continue to carry them with me to transmit to my community today. As we read in the opening paragraph of the Haggadah, all who are hungry, let them come and eat. All who are needy, let them come and celebrate Passover with us. Let's always make room for everyone at our Seder. Hi, Avi and Phoebe, it's Ellen Besner from the CJN Daily. I wanna tell you a memorable Passover story which dates back to when I was living and working in Rome, Italy in the late 1980s and early 90s. I was in my late 20s and it was important to me being so far away from Canada to have a Seder. I was working for the CBC and I spent a lot of time at the Vatican as the correspondent. So you really feel lonely as a North American Jew there. And Italians are neither Ashkenazi nor Sephardis. They're Italian and they have their own traditions dating back 2000 years, but they were all very foreign to me. So one year I decided to make my own Seder. 
So I went into the ghetto in Rome and I found matzah and I found some kosher lamb and I invited all the expatriate Americans and Canadians who were Jewish, who I knew, who lived in Rome at the time, and we started preparing to hold the Seder. At the time, I was engaged to an Italian man. He was Catholic. He'd started the process of converting and his family or my in-laws were as Catholic as it gets. I mean, they made sausage every fall out of a side of pork, which totally grossed me out. And they loved the Pope. But that afternoon on Erev Pesach, my former sister-in-law walked into the kitchen and she took a look at the box of matzah on my counter. And she cried out, Ooh, pane azimo, which means matzah in her Calabrian Italian dialect. And I was stunned. I thought, wait, you're Catholic. How do you even know what matzah is? Then she told me that when she was little, she used to eat matzah and that their mother used to light the candles on Friday nights. And I didn't think much of it at the time. I was busy cooking for the Seder, but later I did a little investigating. And that family had serious Jewish origins. It turns out their mother's maiden name, Elia, was Italian for Elijah. And their father's last name was Gaudio, and that's a version of Isaac, and it meant laughter. And it could have been the name of a Jew who served as a jester in the Spanish king's court back in the 15th century. Now, those names were even listed in a scholarly book about the Jews of Italy who'd come from Spain and the Iberian Peninsula in the 15th century when the Jews were expelled, unless they converted to Christianity. Even so, some of these Jews continued to act as Christians on the outside, but practiced their Jewish faith in secret at home, and they were known by the derogatory name Moranos. Now, they never did anything about it, and neither did I, and that marriage ended years ago, and I've been blessed with a wonderful new husband and our children, for whom I've made satyrs for 25 years or more now. But I always felt happy that even though my then-in-laws probably saw me as the outsider, the Jewish girl from Canada who was the stranger who briefly married into their Catholic family, it turns out we weren't so far apart after all just that my in-laws were not aware of their own ancient Jewish DNA. Happy Passover to you all. En quoi cette soirée diffère-t-elle des autres? Hi, my name is Mindy Polak. I'm a borough councillor in Outremont in Montreal, and my claim to fame is being the first Hasidic woman to be elected to office in Canada and probably around the world um, as far as we have been able to research. So I'm here to talk to you today about um, Pesach and the holiday of Passover, uh, which is a really special time in every family, I think, um, certainly in mine. Um, my earliest memories is waking up and um, after a few weeks of having to um, have the house be cleaned thoroughly, finally it was the day that the Passover kitchen was being opened. Um, my parents have an extension um, in the back of the house that is a sukkah slash living room slash Pesach kitchen. Um, so we take out the couches and open up the cabinets and bring up the stove and suddenly it's converted into a Pesach kitchen, um, which is very fun every single year. Um, so I remember helping out in the kitchen uh, my mom would be in charge of the delicious uh, soups, meats, um, and um, compote. Um, and then the eldest sibling would be in charge of desserts and baking. And I, I and whoever was the younger sibling around at the time would help out as assistants. Um, and it was really fun when it was my turn to be the eldest sibling in the kitchen 
and to have my younger sibling and my nieces helping out um, in creating um, all of the delicacies. Uh, something else uh, that I really um, enjoy about Pesach is the collection of Haggadahs that we have in my house. And um, a couple of years ago during the pandemic, I actually um, ordered a graphic novel, uh, a Passover Haggadah graphic novel um, by Jordan B. Gormfinkel and Erez Zadok. Um, and it is a wonderful addition to my Seder. Um, I think it's a special way to... Um, interest kids in the story as a graphic novel, but as well, um, I'm very much enjoying it. And the illustrations are beautiful. The text is the traditional Haggadah and it's just wonderfully interpreted. And, um, it's just a wonderful addition. I highly recommend it, um, for people. Another memory I have is my parents speaking about their parents, um, satyrs and my mom telling us, uh, when we were up to, the part where we eat the maror and um, and the lettuce, and my mom would always tell us that her father would uh, bite into the maror. He would actually bite into a piece of horseradish, I believe, and he would have tears running down his face from the bitterness of it. And he would say, this, this is sweet compared to um, what he went through in the Holocaust. He was six years in concentration camps, um, as his town, unfortunately, was one of the first to be invaded by the Nazis, uh, made their memory memories be uh, erased. For me, Passover is uh, a lot about freedom and the victory of, you know, the Jews over slavery, of light over darkness, of justice over tyranny. And it's very special to be able to sit down every year with family and remember that and value that. And considering that there's a text that it's part of the Haggadah where it says that in every generation, somebody stands up to get rid of us and they haven't managed so far and they never will because we will prevail. And it's a good reminder that, you know, the anti-Semitism that we face today um, is not new. It's not, unfortunately, um, anything we haven't seen before and that we have to continue to strive to be the best that we can and to do the best that we can. Um, and in trying to make our corner of the world a better place. So I'd like to wish everyone a kusheren freilichen Paisach and a kosher happy Passover um, to all Jews in Canada and um, and around the world. Thank you so much. Pesach happens in the home. It's a very much a home-based holiday. We have seders in the home. We go to other people's homes sometimes. Um, it's communal, but it often tends to be communal in a family way. And as a result, like families have these customs, right? Did you have any specific like family memory or custom, something specific that happened at seders growing up? Oh, boy. Uh, not particularly. I mean, I think we didn't really, we're not a family that necessarily did this every year. So and it would be different, like different people would be having it. Like I remember, like the only thing that came to mind, I was trying to think about this was like being at some cousins where they had a family, like a friend of theirs um, had pink eye, a grown up. And I my role at that Seder was serving her food so she wouldn't contaminate the serving utensils. Oh, so you could get pink eye, but it would be contained. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it was the... I don't even know. I, I didn't end up with pink eye, um, but... I wish that that would have become like a family custom that every year you had to mm -hmm. serve your cousin like food at the Seder 
because of <laughs> to remember that year when you had to feed her because of the pink eye and that became like this yeah so um yeah so we're about to hear from several other people who each of whom had their own um family customs um songs specific rituals that become treasured family um you know memories and get carried through year by year and we think it's silly to say these things that are you know arbitrary just become you know part of what we do every year but i think that's what's lovely is that you get to create memories and retain them and pass them forward. Um, so we're going to hear from, among others, uh, David Birnbaum, who is a former uh, member of the National Assembly of Quebec, uh, our Ralph ben Murky, our very own uh, host of Yehopitzville, uh, Rabbi Gila Kane of Temple Beth Oren Edmonton, uh, as well as uh, Ophira Eisenberg and David Bezmosgis, who is a wonderful writer and filmmaker from Toronto. Magid, lecture de la Haggadah. Papa remplit le deuxième verre de vin Fais tourner le plateau au-dessus de nos têtes et nous chantons en chœur. Hi everybody, I'm Ralph Ben Murgi. Uh, I am the host of Yehopitzville, the CJN podcast. Uh, I wanted to wish you all a hug, Pesach Sameach. There's this thing we do in the Sephardic tradition that I'd like to share with you in the hopes that one day you'll all do it as well. Early on in the Seder, we pick up the, very early on, we pick up the entire Seder plate and we put it over our heads and we pass it around over the heads, holding it for the children, of course, but passing around the Seder plate. And at the time we do it, we sing about being free and leaving Egypt. And you just keep repeating that while you do the entire table three times in a circuit. And it's one of those things that every year when we do it, I just feel so connected to my whole upbringing and to the wonderful traditions that we all bring to our own versions of Judaism. So I'm hoping for you that you have a wonderful Pesach and think about the idea of freedom freedom from the slavery, not just historically, but the slavery that we bring to ourselves in our habits, in our custom, in our sometimes not as mindful as we would like lives. So if we can free ourselves, think of the phone. If you could not be a slave to your phone for any period of time in a day or a week, wouldn't that just be wonderful? So freedom is the message. Pesach is the time to do it. Spring is arrived. And I hope you all enjoy all of that together. It's not only about hearing and telling the story, it's about becoming the story. The essence of this night is the sacrificed spring lamb, whose body played a central part in the ancient ritual of revival after a hungry winter. The Mishnah tells us that in the period when the temple stood and they offered the Pesach lamb, they brought before him the body of the Pesach lamb. Him is the person who is sitting at the ritual. Imagine the sight, smell, and feeling of having this symbol of potential life, but also of fear and hardship lying there at the center of your family circle as you move into a new year. 
And let's remember that Nisan was the beginning of our ancient uh, year. What sort of story do we develop around this potent image of life and death? After the Mikdash was destroyed, we found a new way of re-entering our story of leaving oppression and becoming a viable people. We created a narrative of storytelling, but at the center of this telling, we placed some items. Now, there was no body of Pesach lamb, but rather Pesach, Matzah, and Maror. We know about Matzah and Maror, but the Pesach? That used to be the sacrificial meat. And today? Today we arrange a plate of symbols, pointing us back in the direction of our creation story as a people, the moment of our bloody birth. We place eggs and greenery as signs of spring and new life, of the roundness of time and new possibilities. We have Maror to remember being tied down in slavery, and Choroset, echoes of the Song of Songs, which we read during Pesach, reminding us of sweetness of loving covenant. And we have the Zroah, hinting as a distant memory towards the sacrifice. This plate isn't a decoration, not even a sacred decoration. It's an actual storytelling tool. The Haggadah is a wonderfully fascinating text, but you can't smell, touch, or taste text. The Seder plate is a full-body experience of remembering hunger and fear, remembering the sweetness of covenant and of sitting generation after generation in front of an act of sacrifice. We're supposed to use the items on this plate to tell the story in our own words, tasting and touching and smelling our way through the ritual. In our semi-disembodied times, it might be good practice to refrain from purchasing another copy of the Haggadah, though there are many beautiful and wise ones out there. We should rather refocus our energy on diving into the saddle plate, which is the focal point of our table and our story. On Pesach, we don't want to only hear and tell the story. We want to become the story in all our mind, body, and soul. Chag Sameach. Hey, this is Ophira Eisenberg. So we always ate very healthy at home and my mother did not allow us to have junk food. I always wanted KFC because there was one located near my school and they would just pump the smell of that chicken and uh, it smelled delicious, but I wasn't allowed. However, every Passover, my mother would give me a couple dollars and I was allowed to walk over to the Kentucky Fried Chicken and buy one drumstick, eat it, and then that drumstick bone would be used as the shank bone on the Seder plate. <laughs> Looking back, it seems so hilariously wild. Uh, and as you know, the, the shank bone represents sacrifice, so perhaps this was my mother's sacrifice to me, a little junk food on the Seder plate. My late Bobby Bessie's egg farfel is probably the most constant uh, memory for me of family Pesachs. Uh, I grew up in a very proudly secular, proudly Jewish family, and our maintenance of the rituals was rather slapdash. But one constant was Bobby Bessie's egg farfel. Um, I lost my dad at 13, 
and uh, my grandparents, my remaining grandparents, soon after. Uh, so the rituals became a little bit uh, uh, fewer and uh, further between. Um, but I'd usually find a way in most years to cook up some of Bubby Bessie's egg farfel and throw it in a homemade chicken soup. And for me, that's been a bit of a constant. Perhaps even more significant for me in that uh, my dear conjointe Hélène and my children have grown up in a, in a, in a home that's uh, got its proud Jewish elements and proud Catholic elements from uh, my wife's side, uh, uh, neither that include much strict religious observance. But uh, the roots from which we both come are traced and expressed in different and nonetheless meaningful ways. And Bobby Bessie's egg farfel is one part of that expression, and it means a lot to me. My name is Rabbi Adam Stein. I'm one of the rabbis at Congregation Beth Israel in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'm standing outside where I can't say it's beautiful. It's a little cold. It's a little cloudy, even though we've had some clear days and uh, a bit of spring recently. But I'm standing outside so I can look at our Jewish community garden that is starting to grow here uh, right on uh, sort of next to our property and next to Vancouver Talmud Torah, which is next door to us. We're doing it in conjunction with them and with Jewish family services. And it reminds me that Passover, Pesach really is about community. It's about coming together. I have so many memories of coming together with family and friends over the years, extended family and new friends and old friends and congregants in different places where I've lived, in Kansas City and Melbourne, Australia, and now here in Vancouver. And as we come together in Seder's, this, this gathering that was designed by our uh, rabbis from centuries ago, basing it off of the Greco-Roman symposium, we remind ourselves that we're so lucky to be able to gather together and discuss issues of the day and discuss the, the Haggadah and talk about how the rabbis interpreted the Exodus story. We don't even read the Exodus story in the Seder, but we talk about how our tradition has talked about the Exodus story. And we have the, the luxury and the wealth and the freedom often to just be able to sit and recline and discuss and connect with other people, whether it's outside in a garden or inside in a room around a table. In April of 2005, almost 20 years ago, I recorded my family's Seder. I did it because my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, Yaakov Milner, who had always led the Seder, was getting old, um, and I wasn't sure how many more Seders he'd have left. Um, so it was a slightly morbid exercise, um, but it turned out to be um, the right decision because... By the next April, he was no longer able to lead the Seder, and he died in August of that year, of 2006. Um, I also wanted to record it because my grandfather, who was born in Latvia uh, before it became part of the Soviet Union, um, had a very distinctive way of chanting, one I haven't heard before. Um, and I wanted to preserve the sound of the melody that he sang. 
Um, my grandfather was the person who, I guess, was the repository of Jewish tradition in our family. Um, he had a Jewish education. Uh, he knew Yiddish. And by the time of the Soviet period, he was really one of a small minority of people who had survived the Holocaust, whether because um, he had evaded um, the Nazis who killed most of Latvian Jews, or because he was one of the men who fought with the Red Army, as he did, um, and came back alive. So he was part of that last generation um, that still had the connection to a Jewish world. Um, this is, as it turned out, the last Seder with him, and it also turned out to be the last Seder that my father was at. Um, and the languages spoken at the time was some Yiddish from my grandfather, a lot of Russian, as you'll hear, and a little bit of English. Um, so the little bit that I've chosen is uh, my grandfather singing the Halach Ma'anya uh, to begin the Seder. Halach Before we continue, uh, why don't we take a moment and hear from our sponsors for today? Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So look, you know, you bring family together. Uh, it's not always fun and games, right? Sometimes the oppression and the difficulties that we have with family members uh, can be worse than the bitter herbs, more teary-eyed than all the salt water that we have out there. I can think of moments of, uh, you know, when you have 25, 30 people growing up in our, around a, a table for the Seder. Um, it, got, uh, it got interesting at times. Um, I, I was young, so I don't specifically, you know, I'm not going to point out any specific moments uh, because I was sitting at the kids' table, but I could hear things getting heated sometimes. What was you it like? Know. I want to know 
what were your childhood seders like? So we always had uh, one seder where the extended family would come. And this was the extended family that wasn't necessarily observant, that would just all gather together. And they knew that seder was at the Flying Golds. Uh, my grandmother was there. Meme, she was Moroccan. So we had the, you know, more secular uh, Ashkenazi family from Westmount. And we had some cousins often of the Sephardic side and my grandmother. And so the various, uh, the interesting thing that I remember was often the not always perfectly harmoniously melding of customs but sometimes the clashing of customs um and trying to be pleasant about it but like always like well when do we do this and when do we do that and well i believe that you should do this and 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 that so so that stuff is there always and there's always like bringing families together with the seder and we tell couples you know when i do couple when i get uh do weddings for couples i tell them one of the biggest points of tension that you are going to have within your relationship always will be the bringing together of two families um for seders whether you go to their family or they come to you or however it's going to connect um it it can be they can be hairy at times. Um, Passover memories are very much blurred in my head with like Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. So it's maybe a bit of a bigger deal than Canadian. Um, were there, were there, was there clashes within your family whenever you would, uh, whatever satyrs you would get together? Was it more like, or did you leave those things for Thanksgiving? They're blurred in my head. I just imagine some kind of like somebody's roasted a chicken and a bunch of people, all of whom are, you know, nominally jewish some of whom probably aren't are you know eating together and i think the main thing honestly that sticks out for me about seders versus thanksgiving is really the presence this, or absence um, of cranberry sauce uh <laughs> well not even because haro said can kind of like it's even a little bit conflated in my head it's more just like the waiting to eat versus the not waiting to eat um, you just struck on something really interesting there. I think creating a cranberry charoset for Thanksgiving dinner should be like de rigueur for people that celebrate Thanksgiving. I, I, I can easily see charoset, especially with some cranberry thrown in there, be a wonderful addition to a uh, a Thanksgiving table. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Passover might have the better food, actually, than Thanksgiving. Um, I, I do like stuffing, but I think... Um... Horseradish, delicious. Parsley with salt, delicious. Haroset, matzah is all, all very tasty stuff. Amazing. Um, let's hear from some people that have had uh, interesting stories with regards to their families. Uh, I had a chance to chat with uh, our various favorite uh, Canadian political col columnists, uh, Barbara and John Kay. They, they're separate columnists, but they are related. And uh, they tell us of some of their stories. They told me some of their stories of their satyrs. Uh, Professor Yael Halevi Weiss uh, tells us a very great story from the uh, works of A.B. Yoshua. And, of course, our very own David and Alana um, from Bonjour Chai have some stories of their family satyrs, along with a very special announcement that you should stay tuned for. What are you doing? We drink. We're closed. Nice people don't drink on Pesach. They go to the synagogue. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. A great terrible. My family in Toronto was unusually large. My father was the youngest of nine children. They were all there and they all had children and they all... Uh, had uh, sizable families themselves, so they were huge, our satyrs, uh, sometimes close to 100 people. In fact, a reporter once came to sort of see this this thing happening, and we'd sit at individual tables. The interesting thing to me uh, was that um, 
my my father would lead our table each each pater familia would you know uh do the individual seder at each table and he grew up in yiddish and he grew up uh he'd gone to cheder and he could do it a mile a minute he could he could just they would rip through those guys would rip through the seder you know through the haggadah a mile a minute um so in a sense it was a very traditional seder but in a sense also it was a very kind of artificial construct with all these different families at different tables going at their own speed and all that and uh i remember when my my younger uh sister's fiance came to one of our seders his family also was from poland but had come after the holocaust and he said he was just amazed at the number of people there were because his own family was so small John, how are the satyrs different then versus what they are now? The satyrs, like I, I'm always amazed that people want my opinion on anything <laughs> Jewish because I'm just, I, it's, as my mom's laughing, like I'm not an observant Jew. Uh, I believe I'm very much steeped in some of the cultural aspects of Judaism, but, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an observant Jew. And that un- unfortunately in- includes Passover satyrs. Like it's been a while since I've been to a traditional Passover seder. However, what I will say is that the Passover Seder symbolizes everything that made observant Judaism impossible for me, but it also, <clears throat> I think, symbolized everything that I took from Judaism in a, in a positive sense. Uh, n- you know, the negative aspect is, like, my attention span never permitted me to follow, like, hours and hours of ritual. I was I always got antsy during synagogue and Jewish school. Um, and, you know, I, I, one memory I have is, like, I go to these Seders... And we do all the prayer, and then finally we get to eat. And then at the end, some keener would say, oh, now it's time for the benching. And, like, <laughs> kids my age would be, oh, yes, please, let's do the benching. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Fuck you. Like, you know, just you know that I'm not going to do this stuff. And it was sort of like the kid in the front of the class who's like, oh, give us more homework. And and that's kind of like, oh, in order to make partner at this law firm, you have to stay for the benching. I was like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to do this. <laughs> However, that said... <laughs> That said, what I loved about the Passover Seder is it told a historical story. It was different than Kol Nidre. It was different than Rosh Hashanah. And so that is one thing that I, that I did find interesting. And in particular, the idea that you could tell a historical story over and over and, and get something new every time. As I said, I don't go to a lot of Passover Seders anymore. Um, <laughs> However, uh, I can say that, that when I did go to Passover Seders, I can't think of one Seder where I didn't think something interesting about like the way, you know, pharaonic society was, was portrayed, um, the way the retribution of God uh, was portrayed, the way Moses was portrayed. I mean, Moses, as, as we all know, is a very imperfect Jewish hero, um, you know, and, and sure. his, the, the denouement of, of Moses is, um, you know, he's... It's not like an action movie. Um, and so there's all kinds of, of, of bittersweet lessons that are encoded in, in the Passover story. Uh, and that's something, you know, observant or not, that has stuck with me. I don't know if you've noticed, but Moses is never even mentioned once in the entire Haggadah. Um, you know, he, he got canceled. There's just, there's <laughs> he he did. That's true. <laughs> he got canceled, and there's a lot of Canaanite revisionism, you know, that uh, neo-Canaanite revisionism is a thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your? Do you, are there any specific moments or memories that are like you're like, oh, that year, that seder, that thing happened that you guys both remember? I mean, p- among other things, Passover is the time of year is is sort of 
when kids first get drunk in many cases because of the, the ritualized <laughs> consumption of, of four glasses of wine. And I think, I, I, naturally, I don't remember this, but I think I was at Nancy's Seder when I was like six or seven. And I like, that's my younger sister. I fell asleep with my face in like, you know, a Seder plate or something like that. Yes. Yes. I, I've been a lightweight ever since. I mean, I, yeah. I, that's, I discovered something about myself. Yeah. What, yeah. what, what you consider long seders are nothing to uh, compare to what what I had to sit through when I was a kid. My my grandfather in Detroit, my other grandfather, uh, where we used to often go for seders, was a chazan and a moil. Hopefully, not and at the same time. He <laughs> not at the same time. He's a double threat. Yeah. <laughs> and he conducted seders that were extremely long. Oh my God, they were, they were, you know, very tough for uh, young people to sit through. But of course we had to, he was very strict. He was very strict. Uh, those were much different from the ones that what Johnny considers long is actually. Oh, uh, I would different. not have done well in that time. No, I you would, would not. Have. Would not yeah. um, I'm curious, both of you, the two of you together, when's the next time you're going to be at a Seder? Oh, together. We're not <laughs> sure if we're going to allow Johnny to come to a Seder's anymore because, uh, Shall I tell him about our Zoom experience? Uh, there's John? no, there's no need to go into specific detail, but <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, look, the fact is, um, I don't always play well with others. The older, I mean, look, I'm, I'm no different than other people, which is that the quirks I have early in life become more exacerbated as, as I get older. Uh, and when you're younger, you kind of have to go with the flow a little bit. Uh, and then the older you get, the more sort of like cranky and assertive you get about your own uh quirks and, and so if, if if anything bores me I, I tend to kind of just say oh going through a tunnel bad reception and i tune out and you know i think covid has exacerbated that like you could never in real life turn off a seder but now you can kind of turn off a seder and maybe that habit of mind will stick with people one way of looking at this is I've given my kids something to rebel against. So I'm pretty sure at least one of my three daughters is going to marry some ultra orthodox guy from Brooklyn. I hope. I hope. I hope it would serve like, you right. Like <laughs> some seven hour seder. Um, yeah, it's it's in my future. Uh, these things ha have a way of coming back to haunt us. It would be so so poetic justice if that uh, happened. Going through to a you. tunnel. Going through a tunnel. <laughs> losing reception. <laughs> Hi, this is Jess Solomon. I'm a comedian from Montreal, now living in New York. Uh, for Passover, I want to say first off, if you don't know, I tried gluten-free matzah last year for the first time, and I'm totally serious when I say it's the best one. That's how bad matzah is. It's the only carb that can be improved by removing gluten. Passover is my favorite holiday I spend with my Palestinian wife. That's when we sit around the Seder table and tell the story of how the Jews escaped the Pharaoh in Egypt while my wife whispers in my ear, let my people go. During the pandemic, a very on-theme backdrop to a few Passovers, we switched to Zoom. In case that happens again, hopefully not, and you'd like to get out of Zoom Passover when it gets to your turn, simply explain that the story of Moses becoming an Egyptian prince is also part of Islam. And now I'd like to turn it over to my wife, who will be reading it from the Quran. Hello? Hello? Our video and audio appears to be muted. But seriously, folks, on a more serious note, I wish you all a happy and healthy Pesach. And more broadly, I hope for our community to find strength to truly stand up for Jewish values, for justice, for democracy, 
for the protection of minorities and for an end to the occupation. I know people say, of course, there's nothing wrong with criticizing Israel. But when you do, it's like, hmm, maybe keep it en famille. People already hate us. Why add to it? And it's like, where do you want me to do it? Alone to myself in the shower? You know, Jessica, that is a wonderful place for that. Hag sameach, be brave, ask questions, seek truth. And I'm telling you, gluten-free matzah. Abadim, hayinu at the Seder table, our family talks about Yitziat Mitzrayim until the wee hours of the morning. We talk about it from many points of view. And since I'm interested in literature, sometimes I draw examples from this field. In this spirit, I'd like to share with you a passage from a novel by my beloved Israeli writer, Aleph Bet Yoshua, who sadly passed away just a few months ago. This passage from his second novel, A Late Divorce, which he published in 1982, is set during Passover and in the city of Haifa, where Yoshua used to live. It portrays a chaotic family trying to organize itself for the holiday. The opening scene of the novel introduces the world from the perspective of seven-year-old Gadi Kaminka, who's gulping down his breakfast in a hurry while his father gets him ready for school. This is the day before Erev Pesach, and therefore it's the last day of school before the Passover break. Suddenly, Gadi remembers. Oh, I need to take matzah, lettuce, and wine. We're having a class seder today. Why didn't you say so yesterday? I told mom. Well, well, can't you get along without it? Borrow some from some other boy. I'm getting up, mom cries from the bedroom. No, 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 I'll take care of it. And Daddy goes back to the kitchen. He wraps up two matzahs in a newspaper. Then he looks into the closet and fishes out a bottle of old wine. He tastes it and makes a sour face. Anyway, you won't drink it. Doesn't make a difference. It's all just symbolic. Quickly, Daddy pours some of the wine into an old olive jar. Forget about the lettuce, he says. Just borrow a leaf from someone else. So I began to go back to mommy in the bedroom. But right away he yelled, Don't be stubborn, God, it's getting late. I need lettuce, I said. He searched in the vegetable bin and he found some leaves. And whoa, was he annoyed. You still need something else? A snack. But what about the matzah? Matzah's for the seder at the end. Okay, okay, won't let you starve. He sliced me bread in a hurry and smeared some chocolate spread on it. 
Gadi's consciousness in this scene invites us to decode the world as perceived by a child. At the same time, it entails a measure of cultural awareness, for example, that young children in Jewish schools rehearse a seder in class prior to the celebrations at home. With this in mind, Yoshua puts us in the position to judge the remarks of Gadi's father. What difference does it make is indeed the question that the youngest child is expected to ask during the seder, Manishtana. How is this night different from all other nights? Why is Pesach different from the rest of the year? How is our life different from the lives of our ancestors? In a hurry, Gadi's father protests that the school setter is anyway just symbolic. But of course, everything on the setter plate is just symbolic. Pouring rancid wine into an unappealing olive jar instead of giving the child some nice grape juice, for example, is also symbolic, in this case of some thoughtlessness or neglect. Yoshua, in this manner, enjoins, enjoins us to pay fresh attention to the reasons behind our traditional rituals to reflect on the traditional roles assigned to parents, grandparents, and children, and to do so, especially in the context of this most foundational of all Jewish holidays. Chag Sameach. Hi, David. Hey, Elena. It's been a while. How are you? It has been a hot second. What have you been up to? Well, I've been working on this brand new podcast with uh, <clears throat> you that we're going to drop really <laughs> soon. <laughs> it's called Culturally Jewish, and it's a new arts podcast. So be sure to check out the trailer that's going to come out very, very soon. But first, we have some Passover stories for you. David, what is uh, a great Passover story that you have to share? Okay, so I was thinking about this, and um, based on our podcast, I, I remember this was one Passover many moons ago. I must have been six or seven, and I was all excited because I had just been given a part, maybe my first role ever in our kindergarten Passover Seder. Now, we were told to memorize our scripts, take them home with us, and when our turn comes on the very important night, to stand up and deliver it with the same might as Moses. So here I am, ready. I learned my lines. I rehearsed it, you know, with the same emotional depth as like Olivier playing Hamlet. And when the time comes, on the first night of the Seder, all eyes turn and lock onto me. And there I was, paralyzed, overwhelmed, verklempt, my first taste of stage fright. And as my mouth opened, a wail of sound comes out, tears stream down my face, and I run off stage, or rather I run out of the living room, and it was over. My dream of living up to Moses came crashing down. Uh, but my brother soon appeared and told me everything was going to be okay. I could do the part on the next night. And no, I said stubbornly, the night was ruined, it was over. My brother said I should come back to the table, that no one would care. It's an insignificant part. It means nothing. I didn't have to be so dramatic. And then I'm thinking, me? Dramatic? I could get used to this. And so I returned to the table, calmer, under control, but with a new spark ready to burst open. Whoa. And here you are. Now you're a working actor after... After that incident, that was the first thing I think that set me on this 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 path towards towards fame and stardom. 
my story is a whole other part of the Seder. So growing up, the Afikoman was the most exciting thing, of course, because then we would all wait on the stairs to get our gifts. My family did things a little bit backwards compared to what most people do, is that actually the grandchildren hide the Afikoman and our grandfather had to stalk through the house playing hot or cold with us to figure out where it was. And if he couldn't find it, we all get presents. And if he found it, none of us did. And obviously he would pretend every year not to know where it was. But there was one year that was very memorable. I was very young, so most of the story I remember in small bits. But we'd hidden the Afikomen in my grandparents' couch in their living room. And my grandfather, he went upstairs. He's looking in all sorts of different rooms, bedroom, the office, and he can't find it. Then we come back downstairs and there's my brother, who was a baby in diapers at the time, eating the afikomen. He'd oh. taken it out of the couch and he was just sitting there looking innocently while we were all laughing hysterically. So that was definitely one of the funniest Passover memories that I have. Does he still have a taste for the afikomen? No, he's given up that habit. Okay, fair. Wishing you all a happy Passover and please enjoy the trailer to our show, Culturally Jewish. Hi, I'm Ilana Zakon. You may recognize her voice from the time she played a sexy, gun-toting robot in the 2016 shoot 'em up PC game Live Lock. Thank you, David. Hey, we actors have to pay the bills somehow. And I'm David Sklar. You may have just seen me stomping across the prairies in a 50-pound animatronic velociraptor suit in A Dinosaur Tale. Sounds lovely. Mm. We are the hosts of a new podcast exploring Jewish art, culture, and identity in Canada, Culturally Jewish. We're going to go behind the scenes with all sorts of creative Jewish types in Canada, and we're going to talk about what matters to the Canadian Jewish arts community. But we're also going to get into why Jewish representation matters, how we're not shortening our last names anymore, and how we're forging ahead in the 21st century to find out what it is like to be a Jewish artist in this country of ours. Our first episode is dropping soon, so subscribe to Culturally Jewish wherever you get your podcasts. Mama always wanted me to be a doctor, but I became an artist and that really shocked her. Now I'm interviewing people in the biz, pros, and newish, but all of them are artists and they're culturally Jewish. You know, it's not just seriousness. It's not just fights. Um... Some of the most favorite things that I can remember about whether uh, the satyrs that we have now um, are the fun that we get to do uh, in and around the Seder. Those of you who heard last year's Seder know that we uh, throw marshmallows uh, when we get to the hail uh, at the 10 plagues. Uh, the kids know that there's like bags of marshmallows ready and they're like they go into the kitchen and the unsuspecting guests always get showered with the marshmallows. And of course, some of them will end up in the wine glasses. And I find some of them in July, um, you know, in corners of the the house still um yeah i think that the seder is meant to be fun it's meant to include everybody and it's uh if you don't have a little bit of fun um i'm sure you've had some fun memories of the of stuff at the seder yes um the the best fun memory of a seder that i can think of actually did happen here in canada um with some cousins where they had their large dog um was at the seder and uh, by the end of the night, there was a keepa on this dog and the dog, um, I don't know the dog's own, you know, faith tradition. I don't know how the dog felt about it, but, um, there were some funny photos, which I'm sure I have somewhere, um, in the cloud. Did, uh, did the dog, uh, hunt for the Afikoman as well? Well, that's actually another thing is that, um, my, uh, late great poodle, Bizu was a huge fan of matzah. And if you needed to ever get her to come very quickly, um, like to go out or something, you could just snap a little bit of matzah and she would just 
be there immediately, like faster than a treat. Oh my God. This is like the greatest. Why, why have you never told me this before? <laughs> Bizu, the matzah loving dog. She, she was really obsessed. It was something about the crunching. That, like oh, she really. I would have renamed really her. I would have renamed her Afi Komen. <laughs> it would have been a good name. But yeah, now now my uh, human children um, will happily snack on matzah, but they don't, they're not going to, you know, immediately run to it the way Bizu would. I hear that. Um, well, speaking of the Afikomen, uh, let us hear an amazing hunt for an Afikomen from uh, Rabbi Alana Krieger Lapidus. The Rocky Mountain rabbi tells us about her uh, childhoods of searching for the Afikomen. Uh, and then let's hear from Senator Mark Gold and the Menchies, the Menchwarmers themselves from uh, our favorite podcast on Jews and Sports. Every time they sang the part... They clap their hands. Can you do that too? Hi, I'm Rabbi David Rosen of COR. I'd like to discuss kosher for Pesach laxatives. In our guide, we mention that Metamucil original course is acceptable for Pesach. The other varieties are not acceptable for Pesach because they have additional ingredients which are not acceptable for Pesach. In addition to Metamucil original course, there are other laxatives which are also acceptable for Pesach. Hi, we're the Menschwarmers. I'm Gabe. I'm here with my co-host and good buddy, Jamie. Hey, everyone. Something's coming up soon. It's Passover. You know, the festival of matzah. Eight days of blockage. Some, some, of, some of the greatest, the best food holiday we have. One of them, it's up there. Second best food holiday, I would say, behind Hanukkah, but that's worth discussing that's later. Just a nuts take, and I, and I, I my my biggest uh, Judaism like uh, going against the grain take, I guess, is that I think Passover food is just awful. I mean, sorry, maybe that's chalk. I don't think it's a chalk take. No, like some people like really are into Passover food because it's like ah, oh, you only have it once a year, and it's just like no, everything is bad. Take. I I could eat matzah pizza every day yeah. of my life. I could eat regular pizza every day of my life. Regular pizza, a thing that is better than its facsimile. Is matzah pizza, like, will it suffice? Yes. Matzah on, uh, peanut butter on matzah will suffice. Is it as good as peanut butter on a piece of toast? Absolutely not. Not in a million years. I actually think it's better. I disagree. I think peanut, I prefer peanut butter on matzah because I like the way the matzah crumbles, but the peanut butter holds it together. I, I can't believe you've, you've been matzah pilled this hard. This is this is I've, just I've been matzah pilled very, very hard. So, pardon the interruption here. Part interrupting your podcast to argue about matzah. Jamie, do you have any major plans for Passover? Well, I know that for me, Passover always always means baseball and a choice between uh, watching my beloved Toronto Blue Jays early season games or celebrating Passover. And I just wanted to give people a heads up uh, for lots of Jays fans who are listening to this podcast. Uh, the second Seder, uh, on the night of the second Seder, the Jays are playing a day game at 2 p.m. So you can watch. That's the good thing. <laughs> uh, they do have a game during the first Seder at Kansas City. Uh, but the second, the Thursday game is a, a 2 p.m. game. So that's good. Uh, I'm looking forward to doing our uh, third, what will now be our third annual uh, baseball Seder on our Mentorers podcast. Very exciting. And, and, you know, if we had done two, it would have been enough. But we're doing we're doing three because we want to bring you that fabulous baseball content. That's right. Before you go, um, I, I want to share that I'm super excited for Passover this year. Uh, my two-year-old son uh, reads a lot of the PJ Library books. We read sure. a lot with him. Um, a recent book we've received uh, is about sort of the English translation 
combined with the song Dianu. So now that, you know, he, a, a rambunctious little boy, stomps around the house singing Dianu, Di Dianu, 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 just sort of all the time between rounds of Baby Shark and the ABCs, <laughs> he throws in some Dianu. Uh, and we're really excited for him to show it off to our family, even though we know that our children never perform when we want them to. Well, hopefully he learns some other Passover songs between now and the night of the first Seder. Uh, Still but too if he young doesn't, for the four questions. If he doesn't learn any others, then uh, Dianu, I guess, is all you can say to that. Uh, thanks for listening, and please check out our show. Happy Passover, everybody. We're the Menchwarmers, available every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Chag Sameach. Passover was and is one of the most important Jewish holidays for me and my family. My first seders were led by my Zaydi, Oliver Shalom. He davened in Hebrew, and we loved the sounds and rhythms of his speech, the songs we would all sing, and the fact that, miracle of miracles, the seder would always end in time for us to watch our beloved Canadians play our rivals in a playoff game. Of course, I now understand his timing had less to do with miracles and the fact that he probably only read every third word on playoff nights, but I digress. When my late father carried forth the tradition, we heard him preside over the same story and in his own way. I now have the honor of sharing the story with my children and grandchildren. But no matter who tells the story, Pesach directs us back in time so that we may understand our responsibilities here in the present and into the future. Pesach reminds us that although we were freed from bondage, we live in a world where millions of people remain unfree. It challenges us to work to liberate all those who are still not free, whether at the hands of tyrants or human traffickers, whether they're denied the right to practice their faith or express their political views, or whether they're enslaved in a cycle of poverty or despair. One of my great teachers said, that Jews do not have history, Jews have memory. And the Haggadah that structures the Seder embodies our memory, and it's the vehicle through which we transmit the meaning of that memory to our children and to their children. So what is the meaning of Pesach? Of course, every person will answer that in their own way, but for me, as it was for my father and for his father before him, it is simply this that none of us are free until all of us are free. That's what I fervently believe as a Jew and as a Canadian. I know I'm not unique in this, but Pesach has always been one of my favorite holidays. The symbolism and the richness and the meaning that it evokes has always nourished my soul in a way that I've always found very gratifying. Um, my fondest memory from Pesach is when my father, Oliver Shalom, would plot for weeks about where to hide the afikomen. While my mother was cooking up a storm, he was calculating and cackling about his latest plan. Um, the way that it worked is that he would create clues in rhyme, and he would make at least four or five of them because he knew that he was so wily that we would probably never find it on the first two or three tries. And he was right, we never did. Um, the motivation, of course, was that if we found it on the first try, the person who found it would get $50, which, as you can imagine, as a teen in the 80s, that was a big deal. So it wasn't just for kids. The, the older uh, young adults got into it, too. Um, 
He would read us a poem in rhyme, and then we'd have five minutes to go looking for the $50 pushka. And when that didn't pan out, and it never did, we would gather again with him, and he would read another clue, and this time it was $40. And the next time it was $30. And uh, usually it was almost nothing by the time someone finally found it. But my father had a good heart, and he made sure that everybody got a little something. As for the places that he hid stuff, that was what was most amusing. Uh, one time, he opened the bottom of a box of Kleenex and shoved the uh, napkin-covered matzah into there and resealed it. There was a time where he he taped a VCR box to the underside of the dining room table with the front facing him so he didn't even have to get up from the table to hide it which was very sneaky because, of course, we were watching him like a hawk. And uh, I don't know if we ever did find it that year. Anyway, my favorite passage and commentary about Pesach is about how when B'nai Israel is finished crossing the Red Sea and Miriam has her timbrel and everyone is singing and dancing, that God rebukes his angels up in paradise for singing and dancing as well. And he says, why are you celebrating? Don't you know I had to destroy some of my children? I know that Judaism puts a high value that all nations have a share in the world to come. And I love the way that this commentary underlined it. Yes, we are B'nai Yisrael, but we are all God's children. A very happy Pesach, Kusher and Sameach to everyone from my family to yours. Uh, before we go on, let us hear from our other sponsor for the day. During World War II, the Nazis began a little-known program of extermination for their own children. In Peter Klenot's new mystery thriller, The Unwanted, 14-year-old Hannah Ziegler is being driven by her grandfather and her psychiatrist to a euthanasia center. 16-year-old Silky Hartenstein graces the cover of Nazi propaganda magazines. Avi Kreisler is a Munich police detective rounded up for Dachau. And a patrician father hopes his son, David McAuliffe, will be elected the first Catholic president of the United States. In The Unwanted, in the aftermath of war, revenge brings these four people together in ways unimaginable. The Unwanted. Do not skip to the last page. Find it at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You know, at the end of it all, though, let's be honest, it's about the story. It's about the ability for us to retell the narrative um, of our exodus, of our national moment of, you know, emerging out on the national stage as a people, as Israelites, as proto-Jews, uh, whoever you want to call it. Um, what, what part of that story resonates with you still as somebody who is living in 2023? Uh, as somebody who doesn't always celebrate every year, but is there part of the the, the idea of this story of Exodus, um, this this founding myth that still resonates with you, Phoebe? Um, well, what I think about because of the nature of my work and what I think about is like this question of specificity versus universality. And this came up a lot in sort of recent debates about, I guess, I don't know if this was the case in Canada as well, but that a lot of American Jews, sort of progressive ones, would kind of conflate, not not conflate, but would refer to the uh, slavery narrative in the United States at their seders mm -hmm. and um, sing songs that would kind of 
reference this. Are you familiar with what I'm talking I about? I absolutely am. And I actually, I've thought about this uh, very, very much, especially in regards to the Seder. So I'll tell you a story. I had, um, there was a, a moment that I had one year where I was teaching a three-part series about uh, Judaism on pleasure to the to a congregation, a fairly liberal congregation in Chicago. Uh, and I almost got uninvited after the first uh, class, which was on Judaism and food, and it was before Passover. And I made some passing reference to some halachic decision that some people, not necessarily every Jewish person holds by this, but some Jews have this uh, legal uh, tradition that uh, and not necessarily for Seder reasons, but for kosher cooking on holidays sort of reasons that there's an open question that's not resolved and, and or, you know, tough to figure out. And I'm not going to get into what it is. Sorry, I'm putting a million caveats there because people are going to jump down my throat as soon as I say this. That You're canceled already. That, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that non-Jews uh, shouldn't be at the Seder. Right. It has to do with cooking on holidays and, and things like that. I and uh, whether you're allowed to cook for a non-Jew or, or not. And I'm, I'm not going to get into the specificity. We've had not. I'm not allowed to cook and... for a non-Jew, then my husband's there you go. Exactly. Out of luck. You got to tell Sorry, him. no dinner. <laughs> on the holidays. But anyways, <laughs> oh, so I remember saying this and I almost didn't. I, almost, I got canceled because they almost didn't want to bring me back for sessions two and three of this series on Judaism and pleasure um, because so many people at this congregation had non-Jewish members uh, of the their family that would always come every year to the Seder. And I had to explain to them that it's a, it was a technical halachic thing. It had nothing to do with family and saying this and that. But then I opened it up and I was like, you know what? And it was really difficult because I realized that this community didn't have this tension between universalism and particularism. There are denominations within Judaism, and there are Jews that I think really are universalist. It's very difficult to really think about this. But the one piece that I will say that I I do think about a lot is that maybe, just maybe, um, the Seder and Passover is a particularistic holiday. It's a holiday that is f inside, that is for Jewish people, by Jewish people, um, and the attempt to universalize it to say that this is the Seder. It's wonderful, right? I think it's amazing that like every movement decides to say, you know, there's a vegetarian, there's a vegan Seder that's available, uh, Haggadah, that like you can go and read the Haggadah from a vegan perspective, and you can have the Haggadah from this perspective. And every movement, every ism that you want will have a Haggadah that, will, that, that somebody will write for it. Um, and it's fascinating. But um, and, and how universal the story is. But at the end of the day, it is a particular story that is for the Jewish people. And I think that that is fascinating and fundamental. And I think we don't often think about this, that in our attempts sometimes to universalize our traditions, we forget the tension between the universal and the particular. And and this is really, I, I really do believe that Passover and the Seder in particular is a particularistic holiday for the Jewish people. Uh, it's not to say that you shouldn't have non-Jews at your Seder, but it's something to think about um, as we go through it. Um, and I will put my head on that one and I will be canceled gladly to say, <laughs> that maybe just maybe the Seder is particularistic in that way. Well, I am excited to tell my husband that whenever it's a Jewish holiday, he's cooking. There you go. Especially because exactly. he makes very nice uh, Belgian baked goods. So a little, Beautiful. not quite right for Passover, but. <laughs> exactly. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I would like to close this off with two of the, honestly, the very, the very best pieces that we have today. Not that 
everybody else that we haven't heard so far isn't amazing uh it really has been amazing uh love everything that everybody's put into it um, but i've saved two of the best for last one is from oro anahori Librowitz, who is a master storyteller who tells us a little known midrash about rabbi yochanan ben zakai and serach bat asher um, and how they relate to the passover seder and finally uh last but Definitely not least, uh, David Abbott Ball of Julicious fame um, tells us uh, what the story means to him. On poursuit la lecture du Hallel et on termine avec le chant suivant. Baruch Habba. This story happened more than 1,300 years after the Exodus from Egypt, in the first century of the Common Era. One day, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai was discussing the story of Pesach with his students. And at one point, he asked them an unusual question. What do you think the walls of the Red Sea looked like when the children of Israel passed through them? One student replied, they must have looked like waterfalls. No, said the rabbi, they didn't look like that. And the second student said, they must have looked like the pillars of the temple. No, said the rabbi, they didn't look like that either. And the third student said, I know, they must have looked like a window into the sea where one could see all kinds of fish and creatures. And Rabbi Yochanan said, no. The walls of the Red Sea looked like vines crisscrossing a window lattice. Suddenly, they heard a voice say, nah, they didn't look like that at all. Everyone looked up, and they saw an old woman by the window. Who are you? asked the rabbi. And how do you know what the walls of the Red Sea looked like? I am Serach, the daughter of Asher and granddaughter of Jacob. And I know what the Red Sea looked like because I passed through it. Now. Rabbi Yohanan knew that there was a Serah mentioned twice in the Torah, first as Asher's daughter, and then at the time of Moses. Well, he said, if you are Serah, the daughter of Asher, you would be older than Methuselah, who lived more than 900 years. Indeed, I've lived longer than that, she said. Well, Rabbi Yohanan was quite amazed and he invited the old woman to come inside. Surely you have a story to tell. I sure have. And it goes back to when I was seven years old. My father Asher and his brothers had just come back from Egypt with the news that Joseph was alive. Indeed, he was known 
as the prince of Egypt. And he wanted us to join him there because, you see, there was famine in the land of Canaan. But in Egypt, there was food. Now, for many years, Jacob had believed that his son was dead. And now he was an old man. So his sons were afraid that the news would come as a great shock to him. So they asked me to find a way to tell Jacob. I went to his tent, played my harp, and softly, gently, I sang the words, Joseph is alive, Joseph is alive. At first, grandfather didn't seem to notice. But finally, he listened to the words and he asked, is it true? Is, is Joseph really alive? And I told him that it was true and that Joseph lived in Egypt. At that moment, my grandfather gave me a great blessing for bringing him such wonderful news. It is because of that blessing that I have lived so long. Now, all this amazed Rabbi Yohanan and his disciples, because, you see, these things were not told in the Torah, and they begged Sarah to continue her tale. So it was that we went to Egypt. For as long as Joseph lived, our lives were happy. But when he died, then came a new pharaoh who made us into slaves. I too was a slave in Egypt. But at last, Moses came and took us out. I remember the last night we spent there. Moses had been gone all day, searching for Joseph's coffin because he knew that it was Joseph's will that his bones be brought back to the land of Israel. But several hundred years had passed, and nobody remembered where Joseph was buried. Moses looked very sad because he couldn't find the coffin. So I told him not to worry because I remembered I led Moses to the banks of the river Nile and showed him where Joseph's coffin was, sunk in the middle of the river. But the problem was how to raise it from the bottom of the Nile. So Moses went to the edge of the river. He leaned over it and said, Joseph, we are leaving. If you want to come, it has to be now. At that moment, a miracle happened. Joseph's golden coffin rose to the surface, and Moses bent to pick it up. It was as light as a feather. So happy were the bones of Joseph to return to the Holy Land. It was then that we crossed the Red Sea. There were angels everywhere watching over us. And the walls of the Red Sea 
looked like reflecting mirrors where we could see not only ourselves, but the past and the future generations as well. It was a beautiful sight. Now Rabbi Yohanan and his students were amazed to hear the story of Serach, the daughter of Asher. They realized how fortunate they were to have met her, for she was a living proof that the words of the Torah were true. And in the days that followed, Serach went to the house of study many times and told them wonderful tales about her long life. Then one day, she said farewell and set off once more on her wanderings. And some say that she is still living among us. I read this story in Howard Schwartz's book, Next Year in Jerusalem, 3,000 Years of Jewish Stories. Hi, I am former Montrealer and current Jerusalem resident, David Abbott Ball. You can find me on Twitter where I am at Julicious. And if you want more information, just Google me. It'll be fun, I promise. Now on to some hopefully interesting Passover musings. Much of what we do this Passover revolves around acts of empathy, where we try to put ourselves in the place of our ancestors who were slaves in Egypt. Matzah is the flat, hastily baked bread made while escaping Pharaoh's troops. And maror are the bitter herbs representing the bitterness of a slave's life. We also have salt water on our plates, representing the tears shed by our ancestors due to the harshness of their captivity. And some people even whip each other with leeks, garlic stems, or green onions in order to symbolize all the whipping that takes place during slavery. So we do all these symbolic things, and we try to imagine that we are slaves. But do we succeed? Most of us live in Western liberal democracies where freedom is a cherished, protected value and an almost constant state of being. How can we possibly actually relate to our grubby, slave ancestors toiling away under a hot Egyptian sun while being punished and prodded by their whip-wielding taskmasters? Well, if we think about slavery a little, it might help. Like, what's the difference between a slave and a prisoner? A prisoner has to be kept in a prison. Without the walls, gates, and guards that keep him imprisoned, a prisoner is very likely to run away and escape at the earliest opportunity. A slave, on the other hand, doesn't need to be guarded so closely. Our rabbis taught us that actually two-thirds of the Hebrew slaves chose to stay in Egypt as slaves rather than follow Moses to freedom. You're probably thinking, David, that's crazy, right? But it makes sense that those choosing to remain slaves preferred their guaranteed three meals a day despite the hardship that that entailed, as opposed to an uncertain future in the desert. This despite the fact that they witnessed a lisping, relatively puny Moses bring the most powerful empire in the world to its knees via unequivocally divine plagues. I guess they lacked faith, or were lulled into complacency by creature comforts, or refused to see the truth that was right in front of their faces? This Passover, as you're sitting at the Seder table, ask yourself how, in this era of unprecedented freedom, how is it possible that you may actually still be behaving like a slave? Whether you're beholden to consumerism, gotta have that new smartphone, gotta have that new luxury purse, or obsessed 
with a particular political ideology that only serves to separate you from your fellow man or woman and destroy your sense of empathy? Or if you passively support the slavery of others by buying products made by the effectively or actually enslaved, ask yourself this, this year on top of celebrating freedom, what can I do to actually manifest it? Chag Kasher V'Sameach from Jerusalem. A different song now, this time from the Passover service, the Haggadah, but with a new twist. Who knows what? Phoebe, thank you for coming to our Seder. This has been wonderful. Thanks, I'm Abby. so glad you made it to the end. We sing all the songs after the after the blessings, and we sing everything till the very last minute. And I'm so glad you stayed till the very very end. It's been so amazing to be part of this. And I wasn't even all that hangry. There you go. Well, I think it was the four large cups of wine that we provided that uh, probably Absolutely. helped with that. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Passover 5783. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled, with extra special thanks for all the music from the SoCalled Seder that we used in today's show. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We really would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. If you're sitting next to somebody the Seder say hey I heard the amazing great Canadian Seder on Bonjour Chai this year you should go check it out as always you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca I'm Avi Feingold and I'm Phoebe Maltzbovi and we wish you a Chag Kasher Vesamech a happy and joyous Passover Joyeux Pâques or a Fredlichen und Zissen Pesach you do any Passover songs? why? it's a long story but I just want to hear some if you know some. <laughs>